So as we kind of think about those powerful words this morning, I want to just relay um, an event from my life. So when I was in college, I went to, I spent a summer out in California, and one of the places I visited there in California was a place called Hearst Castle. It's sandwiched right between Los Angeles and San Francisco, a little bit off the coast, and William Randolph Hearst was what you might call a stuffaholic. So he had collected 3,500-year-old Egyptian statues, medieval Flemish tapestries, centuries-old hand-carved ceilings. In addition, uh, William Randolph Hearst collected some of the greatest works of art ever produced. Then what he did is he built a house of 72,000 square feet to put all of his stuff in which sat on a total of 256,000 acres. And much of this acreage covered over 50 miles of California coastline. And William Randolph Hearst collected stuff for 88 years. Then do you know what he did? He died. That was kind of short-sighted, don't you think? So today, people, well, actually, they don't walk through today. It's still closed because of COVID. But up until about February of last year, people would walk through Hearst Castle by the thousands. And all the people that walk through Hearst Castle, they all say the same thing. You know what they all say? Wow, he sure had a lot of stuff. But the problem is he didn't get to keep any of it. It belongs to the state now. And the author of Hebrews tells us that true contentment can only come through Christ, not our stuff, not our money. His message has been simple here in Hebrews 13. He says, look, because we're receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken, we should love one another with a brotherly love. We should practice hospitality. In other words, we should use our things for people. We should open up our homes for people. We should be men and women who love people, not our stuff. We should be men and women that trust in God, not our bank accounts, not our savings accounts. Um, and here's the reason this is so insidious, right? Because... Uh, when we buy stuff, it isn't, it isn't done then. Uh, we buy our stuff, and then we have to store our stuff, and then we have to insure our stuff, and then we have to clean our stuff, and then we have to maintain our, our stuff. And pretty, pretty soon, without even knowing it or being aware, things and stuff are front and center in our lives and we're spending more time thinking about stuff and preserving our stuff and protecting our stuff and ensuring our stuff mind begins to drift away from loving people let's say you spend a week at a hotel how likely would you be to take all your money, all your savings, and spend it decorating your hotel room? Anybody feel tempted to do that? How likely are you to clean out your bank account to purchase uh, Van Goghs or paintings of Elvis or dogs playing poker? 
How likely do you think you are? Not very, right? Not just because it's dogs playing poker, but because you know that your hotel room is temporary. You're only going to be there a little while. It would be foolish to waste the treasure of your one and only life on a temporary residence. And yet, isn't that we get what we get lulled into day in and day out when we begin to order our lives around our stuff? This is what makes Hebrews 13, the word so powerful. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Now why would God feel the need to say that in this context? Because money is the number one thing that people are most tempted to put their trust and their faith in apart from God. And so he goes on to say this, so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Now, there's a wonderful story in the Gospels that illustrates uh, this principle. And I want to I walk us through today what the love of money looks like and why it's so insidious and dangerous. In other words, you can be in love with money and not even be aware. You can be blind to the fact that you're, uh, that, that that's what you're uh, orienting your life around. And so here's what we're told. This is Mark 10, verses 17 through 27. We're told this. As Jesus started on his way, a man, now we don't even know his name, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know more about this man from other parallel accounts in the other stories, so, or in the other gospels. So, for example, we know that he was a young man. We also know that he was a ruler. And we also discover in these parallel accounts that he's rich. He has a lot of money. He's probably good looking as well because it's hard not to be young and rich, right, and not also be good looking. But what we don't know in this story is we don't know his name. And I think that's significant because I think what we're meant to see in this story is that his identity is not found in his name. His identity is found in the fact that he's young. His identity is found in the fact that he's a ruler, that he has power and influence other people. And his identity is found in his riches, in the fact that he's rich. And the reason this is so significant is because these are the very same things that you and I are often most tempted to put build our identity around, uh, orient our lives around in such a way that we're not even aware that we're doing it. So Jesus responds to, the, to this man. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, I want to decipher this phrase because it's, it's a little misleading. So Jesus is not saying here that he's not good. He does not say to this rich young ruler, why do you call me good? I, Jesus, am not good. 
right? What he's doing is he's probing. He's, he's, he's setting this young man up for a conversation where this young man is going to have to face the fact that he's not just talking to a good teacher or to a good rabbi, but he's talking to the Son of God. And then he goes on to say this. Uh, you know the commandments, and uh, he says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, and honor your father and your mother. And this is such a fact since I was a boy. And then we're told this, Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. He loved him. He identified with this young man, and we're going to talk about the why of that in a minute. But I want you to be clear that what Jesus is about to say to this young man, he's not saying because he's angry at him or because he's judging him. In fact, Jesus doesn't even argue with this young man. He takes what he said at face value, and Jesus would know, right? Jesus knew whether this young man had kept the commandments or not. And so clearly, this was not just a a young man. This was not just a rich man. This was not just a man that had power and influence other over other people this was a man of integrity this was a man of give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me at this the man's face fell he went away sad because he had great wealth see Jesus tells this spiritual seeker something that he can't accept. It grieves him. And as the man walks away, notice the reaction of Jesus' disciples. This is verses 23 through 25. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And we're going to talk in a moment about why. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now he drops the rich part out. He just says, look, it's hard for anybody to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus delivers this famously hard saying here. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This statement is as controversial now as it was when Jesus first said it. Uh, In fact, fact, read uh, their continued reaction. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, And so the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, and this is so important, with man, this is impossible. Not with God. All things are possible with God. Now what was so amazing to the disciples about what Jesus was saying was that they came from a culture that did not see wealth as evil, uh, but rather as a reward for moral behavior. In other words, if God likes you, if God's pleased with you, he gives you lots of stuff. So they accepted a view that if you lived a good life, God would reward you with prosperity. 
So this was the worldview of Job's friends. If you've ever read the old with you, he gives you prosperity. If God is not pleased with you, he leaves you in poverty. And so Jesus comes along and he blows their minds because he's unraveling that view. This is why they're so amazed because they thought God was pleased with this young man. And yet Jesus looked at him and said, one thing you lack. See, Jesus' response proves that he didn't share this simplistic view that his disciples had. So Jesus asks him how well he's kept certain commandments, often associated with the creation of wealth. So in other words, it was sometimes assumed in that day, the only, the only way wealth was seen as evil in this day is if you'd gotten your wealth at the expense of someone else. Here's the way he answers, essentially. He says, no, with all my wealth, I have always acted in justice. I've never taken advantage of anyone else or their circumstances. I have never sinned in any of those ways. And as I said earlier, Jesus accepts this answer. This young man is being truthful. He has a high moral compass. And I want you to also notice that Jesus does not say that having money is wrong or unjust in and of itself. Where it starts to go sideways is when you love your money more than you love Jesus. It's the love of money that, we, uh, that God is concerned with here, right? Uh, but he does point out, he does say, look, it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle, or I'm sorry, uh, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, for centuries, people have tried to explain this statement in some pretty creative ways. So some people will say, well, you know, it's not a literal needle. In Jesus' day, Jerusalem's walls had these narrow gates that were very narrow, and it was really hard to get a camel, you know, through these gates, especially if the camel was carrying a large load like rich people often do. Or they might say, well, it's not a literal camel. You know, there's an Aramaic word for twine that sounds a lot like the word for camel. So what Jesus is trying to say is it's really difficult to get twine through the eye of a needle, but it's not impossible if you try really hard. And I think these explanations overreach, and I think they miss the point. Listen, every, we live in a culture, every culture has metaphors. We live in a culture that has metaphors. So if I say to you, look, there's not a snowball's chance, right, that you know what that means. You know that that means snowballs can't survive in a hot place, and so, therefore, it makes it unlikely. Or think of the phrase, my, my dad used to say this all the time when I was growing up. Well, you know, everybody and their mother was there. Everybody and their mother was there. Now, the kingdom of God. It's just not possible. Now, there's an important nuance here. Because Jesus isn't saying in this story that rich people are bad. He isn't saying that it's wrong to be rich. Uh, he's just saying that rich people almost always trust in their riches rather 
than trusting in God. That's the problem. We get so captivated by our wealth and our things that we take our eyes off of Jesus and we put it on our stuff and on our things. And then he goes on to say this. You know, he says, look, they don't even, it's not that rich people mean to do it. It's not that they intend to do it. It's just the normal condition of the human heart for people to move in that direction and begin to orient their life around their things. So it is impossible without God, without a miracle, without grace. Think about how Jesus counseled this man. Make no mistake, this young man needed counseling, even though he seemed to be have it all together. Right? On the, I mean, on the outside, he had everything that every one of us in this room would want. He had his youth, he had his wealth, he had in, and yet Jesus counseled him and says, hey, there is something that you lack. Even though you see seem to have it together to everybody else your heart i see that there is something that you're you, you know that you um, that you're missing and furthermore the question that this young man asked jesus what do i have to do to inherit eternal life this was a famous question this was a question that every jew in that room thought they knew the answer to any devout jew any of jesus disciples if he had asked them that question instead of jesus you know what they would have said well that's easy obey torah and avoid sin obey the law keep the law and avoid sin that's what you have to do to get eternal life but that isn't what Jesus says at all in fact if you were to ask me today hey pastor what do I got to do to inherit eternal life I'm not gonna look at any of you and say you know what you got to do you got to sell all your stuff and you got to go and you got to give it away to the poor and then come and follow me that would be a losing proposition for many of you most of you actually right no so why does Jesus answer this young man in this way because he knew what was on the throne of his heart he knew what this young man didn't even know about himself he saw what this young man was blind to in his own life. He was completely captivated and wrapped up in all of his stuff. And he loved his stuff so much it would never allow him to love people the way that he needed to love people. Remember, Jesus thinks he's doing this young man a favor because he loved him. He loved him. He wanted what was best for him. So he says, one thing you lack. Now think about this. This young man was essentially saying, I've done everything right. I've been successful socially. I've been, succe I've been successful morally. I've been fin successful financially. I have everything that anyone could want, but I still recognize that there is something missing in my life. I've done everything right, and I know something is missing. This is why he goes to Jesus in the first place. Because he thought he knew the answer to that question. He thought he knew what Jesus was going to say. He thought Jesus was going to affirm him and say, oh, you're good. You don't lack anything. There's not, there's not anything that you need. 
See, here was a guy who was pulled together, has degrees from the right places, is on the partnership track. This guy's made millions. He has his whole lifetime ahead of him. And yet here he is seeking out a rabbi and essentially admitting, look, something's missing. I don't know what it is. Do you know of anything that I'm missing? And of course Jesus knows what he's missing. He's missing him. So one thing you lack, Jesus says, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then I want you to come and I want you to follow me. Now why would Jesus answer this question that way? Again, I I mentioned earlier when somebody asks me that question as a pastor, I don't ever answer that way. And neither does any other teacher of the Bible that I'm aware of. So why does Jesus answer this rich young ruler? Because he knew what was in his heart. He knew what his kryptonite was. He knew that this young man's identity was all wrapped up in his wealth that he had never considered or even imagined. Accomplishments. And that effort is alienating you from your heavenly Father. You are putting your trust and your hope and your identity in wealth and not in God. So here's what I want you to see. So Jesus is essentially saying to this young man, I want you to imagine your life without money. I want you to imagine all of it gone. No inheritance, no more country clubs, no more inventory, no more servants, no more mansions, and no more savings. All of that is gone, and all you will have left is me. Can you live like that? And this young man knows that he cannot, and he will not. Translation would be the word grieved or heartsick. And here's how I know about this was so great that Jesus literally began to sweat drops of blood well Matthew uses the exact same Greek word of Jesus in those circumstances that he uses of this young man in these circumstances this young man wasn't just sad he was deeply grieved now it's easy to simply think that Jesus was deeply grieved because he was about to face a cross and that's partially true who wouldn't be right? Who wouldn't be um, upset? The reason that Jesus, the bigger reason beyond the cross that Jesus was deeply grieved was because he was about to lose the joy of his life and the, his core identity as the Son of God. He was going to lose for a time the love of his heavenly Father. He was going to take on punishment and wrath something he'd never, ever known before. He was going to be separated from his heavenly Father for the first time ever in his infinite existence. Jesus was losing his spiritual center. He was losing his very self. So when Jesus... This man started to grieve because money for him was what the Father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. So much so that he couldn't bear life without it. To lose his money would have been to lose himself. This is why we're told that Jesus looked at this young man and loved him. Do you know why? Because I think Jesus looked at this young man 
and identified with him. Jesus, who at this point is only 31 years old, looks at this other young man and he identifies with him because, see, Jesus too is a rich man, far richer than this young man could have ever imagined. And Jesus has lived in incomprehensible glory all of his life, right? He's known the love and the wealth and the joy of the, of the Trinity for eons. And he has already left all of that behind, all of that wealth, to live in poverty as a Jewish peasant. He came in poverty. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says this, Though Jesus used to be rich, he left all that behind, and for your sakes, for our sakes, he became poor. And Jesus might add to that, I'm going into a deeper poverty and isolation than anyone has ever known. I'm going to give everything I am and everything I have away for you. So will you give up everything you have for me? I mean, if I gave my everything away for you, how willing are you to do the same for me? If I that identity's all wrapped up in money, I'm the ultimate rich young ruler who has given away the ultimate wealth to chase you. So now, you need to give away your identity and follow me. See, let me tell you, if you understand Jesus as the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything he was and is to come for you, it is going to change your attitude toward money. The only way that I know of to counteract and disarm the power and the allure of building and orienting our lives around our stuff is to look to the ultimate rich young ruler who gave away everything he was and had to love you. So let me ask you again. Is all wrapped up in that? Honestly, I would argue pastorally that money is the number one functional savior of our society and the number one idol of our day. I would also argue that nothing else even comes close. And it makes sense, right? Because it represents the ability to go out to cool restaurants, to take great vacations. It's the ability, doesn't it, to negotiate a lifestyle on your terms where it appears that you're the one in control. You're the one calling the shots. And it's so easy, isn't it, to just get all entangled and wrapped up in that in ways we're not even aware of. So what's the remedy? How do we break free from that? How do we begin to unravel our identity as it relates to all this consumption that's associated with all of our lives? What's the remedy? Well, it's something that Paul and the author of Hebrews called contentment. So this takes us right back to Hebrews 13, right? Therefore, uh, 
you know, well, I'll just read it. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content. There's that word, contentment, with what you have. Why? Because of God. Because God has said, look, don't put your trust in that. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Money will. Your money will. You can lose it all. One day, you're going to have to give it all away anyway. And you know who you're going to give it away to? You're going to give it away to kids that are going to fight over it. And that are, that are just going to argue about who gets what. So here's what, and it's so interesting, this word contentment. It's so rare, this word contentment is so rare in people that uh, Paul actually calls it a secret. A secret. Look, here's what he says. Uh, this is uh, Philippians uh, for this first, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. But the context for that verse is this word contentment. Learning to be content where we are without clutching and grasping for more. And notice that the common denominator found in both verses is just simple trust in Jesus. In Hebrews, you know, um, why should we be content? Well, because of God. In Philippians, how is Paul able to be content? Well, because of Christ. And here's why this is so important. Because the only way to replace a great affection in your life is to replace it with a greater affection. You don't replace a great affection in your life just by trying harder. No, you replace it by investing and, and learning how to love something or someone else more. And so the answer, the name at the center of contentment is Jesus. No one else, nothing else. Just Jesus. And I want to remind you of something that we don't really think about a lot. Paul so Paul says, look, you know, I know what it's like to go hungry, and I know what it's like not to have clothing, but I'm content anyway. I want to remind you that Paul came from and a wealthy family. We also know that Paul had Roman citizenship. Now, he wasn't just Jewish. He, he had both, he had a dual citizenship. He had Roman citizenship, and he had Jewish citizenship. And this was very prestigious. This was very, very rare. See, that kind of citizenship almost always had to be bought. It had to be purchased. So what I'm saying is this. This is why all that matters. Going without food was new to the Apostle Paul. Going without clothing was new to the Apostle Paul. He'd never known what that was like before. And yet, he said, I know how to be content. And I do it through my relationship with Christ. You know? But see, sometimes we re read a verse like this and we, we, we don't use the word Christ. We read a verse like this and we want to substitute the word Christ with our idols. So we say things like this. I can do all things through wealth who gives me strength. I can do all things through drugs or alcohol, which gives me strength. I can do all things through positive thinking and the power of commitment, which gives me strength. 
I can do all things. If you're single here this morning and you're yearning for a relationship, it would be easy for you to say, I can do all things through marriage. If I could just get married, if I could just find the one, that guy or that girl and build my life around them, I can do all things through marriage who gives me strength. See, these are all versions that I would call the revised substandard perversion. The revised substandard perversion. And and, and let me break your hearts, single people. There are some married people in the room right now, and they are so miserable in their marriage. Do you know what they're thinking? I can do all things through divorce who gives me strength. Man, if I could just unload the baggage of him, if I could just offload the baggage of her, oh, my life, it would be so good. See, when people substitute inferior things for Christ, and wealth is one of them, nothing good comes from it. It just breaks our heart and our families over and over and over again. So I'll close this way. When I was finishing up seminary in the early 90s, there was a funeral held for a man by the name of Armand Hammer, Many of you probably haven't heard that name before, but at the time, he was the chairman of something called Occidental Petroleum Company. He was a billionaire at the time, and there weren't many of those in the early 90s. In fact, he was called by USA Today at the time, he was called a giant of capitalism. But Hammer's personal life was a wreck. When Hammer died... His son, Julian, did not attend the funeral. Neither did the members of his other two brothers' families. None of them attended, and neither did almost anyone else. Within days of his death, Occidental, the company he was chairman of, distanced itself from him with great cost and at great expense. The company's website didn't even mention him in its history. And as time went on, it became clear why. See, we found out later after his death that Hammer got his start in making money by laundering money for the Soviet government and got increasingly more money through a string of broken marriages, all of which involved litigation and lawsuits. He allowed his own father to go to prison for a botched abortion that Hammer himself had performed. He neglected his son. He hid himself and his assets from his illegitimate daughter, one of his illegitimate children, He had no friends, literally. When his brother Victor died, he filed a claim against his brother's estate of $667,000, and the estate was valued at $700,000, rather than disbursing it to, to his brother's children or to his wife, who was ready to go into a nursing home. One of his many former mistresses, a woman by the name of Hillary Gibson, said this about Armand Hammer. Believe me, Armand Hammer never believed in anything but himself. Now, I almost didn't share this story. And I want to be real clear about why I didn't share it. Because it's easy 
to hear a story like this and go, that guy, he didn't get it. I mean, he clearly had a love of money. And in that sense, kind of let ourselves off the hook. But I decided to go ahead and share the story, and here's why. Because I just want you to see where, this all, where it always inevitably lands, where it goes. And so I'm going to ask you one more time this morning, what is your attitude toward money and wealth and things? Honestly, really, and what kind of conversation do you need to have with Jesus when he says to you, now fortunately he's not going to look at you and he's not going to say, I want you to go and give all that away. But this is a great exercise, isn't it? Because it gives us an opportunity to imagine what our lives would be like if all of that was gone. Well, this young man imagined that, and he couldn't bear it. He couldn't bear it so much, he walked away. But you and I have an invitation. It's, his day's gone. His day's over. It's past. And all that wealth that he had, somebody else has it all now. Somebody else has every bit of it. He didn't get to keep any of it, and he still didn't follow Jesus. But you and I, we have a choice, and we have an opportunity. And Jesus looks at us, and he loves us, and he says, I want you to come. This is an invitation he's still given today. I want you to come, and I want you to follow me, and I want you to build your life around me, and I want, to, I want you to orient your life around people. Love people, not stuff. Trust in me, not your wealth. So what's it going to be? Come and follow me. So will you be a follower of Jesus? Listen, our world, your life, your family, our church, this community depends on a Yes, I will follow. I will go wherever you ask me to go. I will do whatever you ask me to do. I will work at disentangling myself from all of my stuff and rebuilding my identity on you and, and, and upon you. Yes, I'll follow. Will you say that to Jesus today? Everything is at stake. Eternity is at stake in this conversation. Our world, this life, your life. And so Paul would reflect on his relationship with Jesus, and he would say this, I consider that all the stuff in my life, I consider all that, my pedigree, all that wealth that I left behind, I consider all that stuff refuse, rubbish, garbage, compared to the beauty and the majesty and the joy of knowing Jesus. Make no mistake about it, friends. Jesus is the solution to materialism. Replacing our affection with, that's all wrapped up in all of our stuff with a greater affection for Jesus. So will you go on that journey with me? Let me pray for us.